Greetings listeners, this is Hooting Yard on the Air, my name is Frank Key, and as usual, I'm going to read to you for about half an hour. It might be a good idea to have pen and paper at hand, not for any particular reason, but you know, you might want to make little notes or jot down particularly illuminating passages, anything you like really. So go and get your pen and paper. And I'll continue. I'm going to begin this week by talking to you about the novels of Lothar Preen. Uh, Those listeners who have heard of Lothar Preen probably know him best as the extravagantly bouffanted musical conductor and impresario. But he also wrote a series of novels, and um, we'll take them one by one. Bewildered by Cormorants. 1950. Just 99 pages long, Lothar Preen's first novel is slim, even throwaway, and was completely ignored by both reviewers and the reading public. It's a particularly hackneyed example of the looking for cormorants genre. The hero, Paler Hornet, an anagram of the author's name, is a young explorer charged by his father with going in search of cormorants. In a series of supposed journal entries, Hornet describes his failure in prose that is listless, turgid and littered with innumerable misuses of the prepositions by and with. Although he was characteristically contemptuous of his detractors, It is no surprise that Lothar Preen waited nearly two decades to publish again. But when he did, what a revelation. Bamboozled by Curlews, 1968. Unleashed upon the world at the height of Les Evenements of May 1968, Preen's second novel casts a glowering eye upon bourgeois society. By turns caustic, pitiless and scathing and superbly comic, Preen lashes out at sacred cows and shibboleths in a manner described by one critic at the time as, quote, like something written by the idiot bastard offspring of Ford Maddox Ford and Veronica Lake during the final gasps of Stalinism, unquote. At 1,844 pages, it is one of the longest novels of the 20th century. Cunningly, and Preen can be the most artful of writers, this matchless stream of invective is disguised as a series of letters home from a peripatetic ornithologist engaged in a study of the nesting habits of the curlew. Preen uses the narrator's witlessness, myopia and inability to tell one bird from another as a metaphor for a society in chains. An abridged version for children with four lovely colour plates by Preen's acolyte Marigold Chu was issued in 1983. Perplexed by Starlings, 1970. As if to confound those who saw him as a radical, Lothar Preen's next book was a delicate, miniaturist evocation of domesticity set in an idyllic barnyard. Full of countryside wisdom and bosky charm, it was condemned as trash, and rightly so. Befuddled by Linnets, 1970. 
1974. Loathsome! Ah! Loathsome is the man whose flesh is the colour of spinach, whose hat stinks, who sharpens pencils by daylight, and whose nights are beset by dreams of eerie albino hens. Those, the opening lines of Preen's fourth novel, have been quoted so widely and so often that it comes as a shock to learn that they're absent from all but the very, very final draft of this majestic tour de force, which won the Groot, Pang, Fledgling, Gobbo and Musty Spillage Awards, to name only a few. For if I were to list all the honours lavished on this mighty tome, we would be here all day. And even you, gentle listener, even you would begin to yawn and scratch your head, from which no doubt beetles would fall. Wherein lies the peculiar genius of Befuddled by Linnets? At first glance, it's a simple tale. Indeed, the Korean critic Park No Lip dismissed it as cretinous, although he later wrote a lengthy retraction before swallowing poison in the laundry room of a shabby hotel. His widow was imprisoned and his children languished in an orphanage, a point to ponder for those who dare to cross Lothar Preen. The novel, divided into no less than 4,000 short chapters arranged alphabetically by opening lines, follows the progress of a would-be scientist named Pearl E. Thorne as she trudges through various patches of woodland, listening out for the characteristic chee-chee-chee-chee song of the linnet. But Thorne is no ornithologist. She is an oceanographer with a sideline in amateur map-making, and she's also hard of hearing. According to notes rescued from the charred shell of Preen's so-called potato building, where he lived and worked for nearly 30 years before it burned down in 1989, the character was originally intended to be profoundly deaf, and, by the by, one-legged. Once again, Preen appears to have made an incredible number of changes to the final draft, restoring not only some hearing to his heroine, in her right ear, the left remains useless, but completely rewriting the long central section in which what appears to be a flock of cassowaries is yoked irreversibly to the heroine's dismal fate. It is a moot point whether flock is the correct noun of assemblage for the cassowary, but research must come to a stop somewhere, and I've now got a headache, as you can imagine. You would too if you were to read all of Lothar Preen's books at one sitting. Be that as it may, there's an unbearable poignancy in Pearl E. Thorne's growing realisation that she is unable to distinguish between the exquisite song of the linnet and the raucousness of crows, corncrakes and all those other birds that make such a gruesome racket. Preen's adoption of a female narrative voice was much praised for its authenticity, although I have to say that for me it's woefully unconvincing. I side with the anonymous reviewer who disparaged the author's attempt to join the Brothers Johnson in The Land of Ladies, an amusing reference to the American funk duo who had a measure of popularity in the 1970s. Preen, of course, despised funk, as evidenced by his ferocious essay, 
thunderous execrations of things both abominable and ripe for obliteration, which I would willingly tear to smithereens with my bare hands, cackling with obscene glee as I did so. 1977 Discombobulated by Moorhens, 1980. Dismissed as worthless when published 30 years to the day after Preen's fictional debut, time has been kind to his fifth novel. Written in the form of an instructional manual for children, it has all the charm of a catechism mixed with the faintly sordid air of Belle Epoque pornography. It is also Preen's only foray into science fiction, an unexpected departure, to be sure, given that he clearly had no sympathy for, nor understanding of, the genre. Yet somehow the writing has a mischievousness which made it Preen's most popular book. The Moorhens of the title, incidentally, only look like Moorhens, or at least what Preen fondly imagined Moorhens to look like. They are, in fact, a race of super-ignorant beings from a dying planet in a distant galaxy. The author quotes freely from both Epictetus and Gerard Manley Hopkins, though not to any apparent purpose. Nevertheless, it's an entertaining enough romp and perfect holiday reading. Flummoxed by Owls, 1981 Frankly indigestible, this monstrous work, at 1,748 pages, only a little shorter than bamboozled by curlews, has divided its critics since that strange day at the end of March 1981 when it hit the bookshops just as the news was announced of the death of DeWitt Wallace, the founder of the Reader's Digest. Much blood has been spilled over the placing of the apostrophe in readers, not least Lothar Preens. Throughout his life, the novelist was a fanatical devotee of the magazine, regularly penning articles such as I am John's Cardigan and It Pays to Incite Your Witch Doctor, none of which was ever published. Legend has it that there exists somewhere an archive of DeWitt Wallace's letters to his indomitable, if unsolicited, contributor, from the early polite rejections to the last desperate pleas, insults and threats. Lothar Preen ignored all of them, firing off ill-written drivel to the magazine virtually every month for decades. We are perhaps fortunate that he kept copies of only a fraction of his output and that the Reader's Digest consigned every last scrap of it to the bonfire. When he heard of Wallace's death, Preen locked himself in the potato building for a period of mourning and refused to appear in public to promote his new novel, about which I shall say only this. There is a mildly amusing paragraph on page 16... A superb neologism at the end of chapter 53, a strange pause just then, and a misprint in the very last line. 
Pastry of Death, 1983. Having turned his hand to science fiction, Lothar Preen unwisely decided to have a bash at a crime novel. Surmising that all fictional detectives must have trademark idiosyncrasies or foibles, he made his Captain Urn Plethora a retired Jesuit whaling ship's chaplain with a club foot and a tattoo of a star on his forehead, whose hobbies included pole vaulting, testing for pH values and repairing churns. In fact, so many pages are spent trying to elicit the reader's interest in this preposterous figure that Preen quite forgets about his plot, which begins in incoherence and peters out into what I have elsewhere dubbed grandiloquent stupidity. I repeat this remark on air, despite the fact that when it first appeared in print, one of Preen's trained brutes abducted me and nearly drowned me in an ornamental pond somewhere near Blister Lane Gasworks. <clears throat> Dumbstruck by Bitterns, 1988. By the late 1980s, as Lothar Preen the musician became ever more lauded, this was, lest we forget, the decade of the Sonatina and Variations homage a Ricardo Montalban, Preen the novelist was considered largely a spent force. Not one of his books was still in print, and no publisher of repute would touch him. Indeed, it was only through his criminal connections in the taverns of Marseille that dumbstruck by bitterns ever saw the light of day. The eternal palace of literature must forever be grateful to the grimy, hirsute matelot whose nefarious intrigues led to the meeting of Lothar Preen and F.X. Duggleby. It was Duggleby, deranged, revolting and crapulous, but also erudite, wealthy, and given to wearing particularly decisive cravats, who became Preen's champion, setting up his Editions de Duggleby imprint to issue the now monocular author's work. The first fruit of the partnership was this awe-inspiring novel in which Preen creates an alternative history of 19th century Greenland. Those new to Preen are invariably astonished at the facility, the lightness, with which a straightforward story about a team of bird spotters on a futile expedition to find bitterns above the Arctic Circle is transformed into a multi-layered prose fantasia of matchless genius. Vivid and towering, it remains Preen's greatest achievement and it's somehow fitting that all royalties he earned from it were used to fund a string of gambling dens in iniquitous ports and grubby harbours. Confounded by Guillemots, 1990. To sail the sea is an occupation at once repulsive and attractive, wrote Hilaire Belloc. It's a sentiment with which Lothar Preen concurred. The maritime world was one which informed so much of his music, yet his fiction remained stubbornly landlocked until the sudden late glory of his ninth novel. Its conception we owe to Duggleby. The drink-crazed billionaire lured Preen onto his crumbling wooden yacht and headed for the middle of one of the oceans, 
I'm not sure which one, refusing to let the ageing author ashore until he had written A Tale of the Sea. For the first three weeks, Preen cursed and sulked by turns, until he collapsed with a fever brought on by proximity to bilge water. Once recovered, he set to his task, sitting at a worm-eaten escritoire on the orlop deck, lashed by tropical storms, or possibly icy gales, depending upon which of the oceans it was. The result was this brief 102-page spine-tingler in which guillemots confound the spluttering, pneumonia-racked author. Unnerved by Wrens, 1996. Lothar Preen's final work of fiction is unreadable. Self-consciously experimental, it was written in the space of five hours on the upper deck of a bus plying the route between some godforsaken village full of priests and imbeciles and the hot air balloon launch station at Mustard Parva. By now a cantankerous and bitter old man, Preen was estranged from Duggleby and his tough sailor pals. Even the loyal Marigold Chew was fed up to the back teeth with him. In a previously unpublished letter written from her deathbed, Chew wrote, By then, i.e. the year of our Lord MCMXCVI, he was having constant pangs. His brow had become ignoble and his hair was often rife with breadcrumbs. He lacked dash. I would place pots of soup in front of his cyclopean visage, only to discover him hours later wandering aimlessly around shops that sold or rented camping equipment. His blotchy flesh was blotchier still. He used to creak when he brushed those once glistening teeth. I had thought them superb long ago, those preen fangs. Must our gods be so frail? I suppose they must, and yet part of me wishes still to bless his cotton socks. So wrote Marigold Chu. And then, on St Mungo's Day 1997, on a glamorous morning bright with spangled sunbeams, Lothar Preen died. Like a dog. This is called Some Ponds, a Hotel, the Hollyhocks. 1. Some Ponds There are seven ponds. Their names are Brink, Cramped, Dribble, Lamont, Presumption, Ravenous and Unholy. In a lead box at the bottom of one of the ponds, an Icelandic fontoon lies sealed against the elements. But which pond? 
The fontoon is made of some nameless metallic alloy, and it has a long history. Countless learned tomes have been devoted to pondering its existence, location, significance, colour, smell, incontrovertibility and malevolence. Its value is incalculable. A facsimile made of petrified dough was sold by the museum at Ack on the Vug for an undisclosed sum. The identity of the buyer was also undisclosed at the time. Now, this shadowy figure has the true Fontoon almost in his clutches. He has booked into a hotel just 400 yards away from the ponds. 2. A Hotel The major domo at the hotel stared out of the dining room window. The sky was overcast. Soon the drizzle would begin. It always did. He hooted once and once only. He was afraid of sheep, baffled by corkage, continually muttering about the gasworks, defiant, elegantly ragged, flappable during snowstorms, grotesquely carnivorous, helpless with starch, ignoble, just dying to shake hands with a lion tamer, kept waiting for hours by guests late for breakfast, lascivious yet hard of hearing, mistakenly shot at by poachers, nerve-racked, overcoated, pitiful, quite likely to hoot for a second time, risibly bemuffled, still awaiting a voyage around the world, tempestuous every Thursday, unbelievably festooned with old sacking and netting, vigilant, weak, xerophilus despite the rain, young at heart, and zestful at the prospect of his daily milk supplement. He hooted for a second time, much louder. The hotel was fully occupied. Among the guests were anthropomorphic beings, bauxite miners, cartographers, dribbling thugs, elk fanciers, fontoon hunters, genuflecting dolts, heroic chefs, idiot savants, jugglers, kaolin quarry workers, lopsided people, marionettes, nautical curmudgeons, old besmirched grave diggers, pond draggers, quicklime spreaders, ruffians, sink bashers, taloned maniacs, untidy throwbacks, vinegar brewers, waxen image igniters, xylophone construction experts, yellow-bellied burblers and zinc inspectors. Watching them all gobbling down their breakfast porridge, the majordomo tried to work out who was who. There appeared to be some trouble at one of the tables in the far corner. An aged couple, rattled and with frenzied gleams in their eyes, were raising their voices at a pallid and neurasthenic git still wearing his nightshirt. This man was Richard Widmark, implacable seeker of the Icelandic fontoon. His antagonists were a cartographer and a lopsided person. Their names were, respectively, Eileen and Wolfgang Hollyhock. 3. The Hollyhocks Wid Mark did not realise that for over 40 years the Hollyhocks had also been searching desperately for the Icelandic fontoon. Their interest had been ignited by Eileen's discovery of a tiny zinc fontoon in the Serengeti. It appeared to have talismanic properties, 
which Wolfgang had catalogued into seven basic groupings. Elemental, dishevelled, yellow, crimped, congruent, dismal and vagabond. Among their luggage, the hollyhocks carried the fruits of years of research. 800 ledgers and a voluminous card index system containing information on all manner of fontoons, voils, wesneod slabs, forensic triumphs and choirstool scrapings. A parallel compendium of exciting facts about flags, pennants and bunting had fallen over the edge of their raft some years ago, or perhaps it had been lost in a swamp. After the altercation at the breakfast table, the Hollyhocks realised that Richard Widd Mark was, like them, on the verge of discovering the sunken lead box containing the Icelandic fontoon. They immediately set out in the drizzle to drag the ponds. They wore horrifying Macintoshes. When they reached Lamont, the nearest of the ponds, they were outraged to find Widd Mark already there equipped with a thrilling collection of nets, poles, metal detectors, rotating things, crimping irons and booster guns. The major domo stood at the dining room window, peering out through the drizzle towards the seven ponds. A fight had broken out among three of the guests. Mackintoshes had been removed and boxing gloves donned. There were fisticuffs, there were gunshots, there was wailing. Before long, all three had managed to drown one another and all in the same pond. But which pond? And was it the same pond at the bottom of which a lead box lay? The major domo turned away, hooting quietly. He trudged into the kitchen and made a start on the porridge-encrusted bowls. He had work to do. The Tale of Gaspard Gaspard worked for the gas board. In appearance he resembled the man dressed in red raising his left arm in Hieronymus Bosch's painting The Ship of Fools. Incidentally, while we're briefly on the subject of art, you may or may not know that the famous foot from the credit sequence of Monty Python's Flying Circus was taken from Angelo Bronzino's allegory Venus Cupid folly and time. But enough of that. Back to Gaspard, who worked for the gas board. Gaspard was both dutiful and dismaying. An air of glumness hovered over him. To some it was a visible aura. Flies and other tiny annoying things with wings seemed to follow him around. 
Had he the wit, Gaspard could have made himself useful to the world's entomologists, but he was diffident as well as being dutiful and dismaying. His Gaspard desk was a sorry piece of furniture, rickety and fragile. Gaspard sat at it for many, many hours each day to no apparent purpose. There's a story by John Cheever, I can't remember the title, but it ends with the question, oh, what can you do with a man like that? The same can be asked of Gaspard, for there is something almost inhuman in his dullness. Let us whisk him away then and place him in the icy wastes of northern Canada, sitting on a felled log, surrounded by frisky reindeer, sipping from his flask of piping hot broth as stars sparkle in the clear night sky. A voice booms from the heavens. Gaspard! Gaspard! He is stricken with terror, yet he knows this is the most important thing that has ever happened to him. So he reaches into the pocket of his anorak and takes out a little notepad and a biro. Irritatingly, just as he is about to jot down whatever supernatural commands he is to be given, the voice falls silent, and the only sound is that of pitiless arctic gales roaring in his ears. So we shall leave him there as he drinks the last of his broth, and though he remains ignorant of his destiny, we can rest assured that Gaspard is soon to become the stipendiary vizier of Cac, and no aught but wassail and glee for all eternity. For he is immortal, and he is magnificent. And that's all we have time for from Hooting Yard on the Air this week. I do hope you've enjoyed it. And I hope you jotted down some notes. If you did jot any down, um, you can always write to me at hooting.yard at btopenworld.com and tell me what, what, what you thought. Bye-bye.